This week on Vedic Mythology, Music, and Mantras, I'm going to present a few tidbits to add to the previous podcast on sadhus and ascetics. Sometimes it happens that as I start to research the next podcast, I find some material that I wish I had included in the previous episode, so this time that's what I'm going to do. But first, I want to acknowledge and pay tribute to Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who passed away this week. He was my first spiritual teacher back in the 1970s, and it's safe to say that what I've learned about Vedanta and meditation all originated with him. The times that I met with him personally left a lifelong impression on me, and I always found him to be authentic and absolutely genuine. Big movements are complicated things, and I cannot grasp the complexities of thinking in terms of thousands of people and worldwide movements and activities, so I just recall that he cared deeply about the world and his fundamental motivation was the enlightenment of all, and I'm grateful for what he taught me. This podcast is presented by Pujanet, P-U-J-A dot N-E-T, your Vedic resource on the web, where you will find a host of new Yagya programs for Shivaratri and our new daily Yagya program as well. In our last podcast, we were discussing my experiences with the group of sannyasi in Varanasi. These men were all part of the Dandi order and are characterized by the orange robes and long staff called a danda that they carry with them. This order comes from the tradition of Shankara, and historically all of the succeeding Shankaracharyas come from this order. The Dandis are exclusively from the Brahmin caste, and before they are allowed to take their vows, they must be motherless, fatherless, wifeless, and have no children. But usually they would enter the order late in life, although some enter when they are in their early 20s and spend their life as renunciates. Once initiated, constant movement is a traditional requirement in their lives, except during the rainy season when they can stay in one place for about three months. Interestingly, their danda, or staff, should not be allowed to rest, but should be stuck in the ground or hung from a tree. If you go to the puja.net site and look in the photo galleries, you'll find a couple photo sets from our various anadanam feedings there, and interestingly you will see the dandis hanging from a hook or being held rather than resting on the ground. The dandi is cared for very carefully and is usually kept in a cloth wrap made from the same colored cloth as their robes. And interestingly, they consider their dandi to be a form of Shiva, much like a Shiva lingam, and they worship worship it as if it were. And in fact, this is the only religious ritual that they perform. The staff is made of bamboo and has six knots or segments representative of the six forms of life or gati through which every being has to migrate, specifically gods, devas, humans, animals, ghosts, and demons. One source said that the staff is referred to as Sudarshana, which is the name of Vishnu's weapon given by Shiva, presumably because the dandi is a protective defense against any obstacle to their personal evolution and enlightenment. Their robes are salmon in color and can be only dyed once. The cloth is torn and the edges are left unfinished. 
They are not allowed to touch fire, money, or supposedly even metal in any form. Although from my experience, not touching fire means that they do not cook their own food and they eat only one meal a day, which must be cooked by a Brahmin. I'm not sure about metal, because that would be pretty much impossible to avoid these days. And when we do our anadanam feeding, we always give them ten rupees, presumably, because in today's modern world, even in traditional India, it's almost impossible to function without some access to small amounts of money. The initiation process to become a Dandi Swami is quite elaborate, and it begins with a three-day fast on milk only. On the fourth day, they, become, they perform a big havan, a Vedic fire ritual, after which they shave their head, leaving only just a few hairs on the top. Then the initiate stands waist-deep in water, preferably the Ganges, and plucks out the last few hairs himself. As a Brahmin, he would be wearing the Yagno Pavitra, which would be removed and burned in the Yagya fire. The resulting ashes are then eaten by the initiate. While standing in the water, the initiate receives the mantra of the order from his guru, who then gives him a new name, and the surname is always Tirta, Asma, Bharati, or Saraswati. When he steps out of the water, he's handled, handed his staff, or danda, and a gourd for carrying water, and is then clothed in five pieces of salmon-colored cotton cloth one of which is wrapped around his head. He is then instructed and reminded that he may not possess property and must always seek to teach people the Vedic Dharma. Interestingly, the Dandis do not cremate their dead. Instead, they are either buried or placed in a body of water, this being a natural extension of the prohibition of touching fire. And while researching the Dandis, I came across a great old story that relates to this tradition of renunciation. Once there was a very poor Brahmin woman who was a widow and who lived with her only child, a small young son. She eked out a meager, meager existence grinding corn for her neighbors. She was so poor that all she and her son had to eat was ground corn cakes and water. One day a rich villager was celebrating the marriage of his daughter, and he happened to give the young child a bowl of rice which had been cooked in milk and sugar. This was something that the child had never tasted, and as you might expect, he was totally delighted. But the next day, when his mother gave him his usual meal, he refused it and insisted on rice cooked in milk and sugar. His mother explained that indeed she could not provide that for him because of their life circumstances. She said that only the Devi could help him realize his wish. Well, nearby there was an old temple for a goddess, and it was run down and so ruined that no one visited it and there was no priest to perform pujas. But the Brahmin boy was undeterred and he sat down and prayed to the goddess to give him rice and milk for his meals. For four days he stayed there, meditating without stopping, even for the food that his mother brought him. At last, feeling compassion for the earnest young boy, the goddess appeared before him and asked him what he wanted. Why, rice and milk and sugar every day, the youngster said. Well, you shall have it, the goddess replied, but ask for something more important. 
Well, the boy was so young and his horizons were so limited that he didn't know what else to ask for. So the Devi handed him a fruit that would confer immortality to whomever ate it. The goddess disappeared and the young boy ran home to show his mother. Well, she was quite impressed but felt that accomplishing immortality in their present circumstances was not necessarily something desirable and she suggested that the boy present the fruit to the Raja, who would give them some reward that would enable them to live comfortably for the rest of their lives. In due course, the Raja accepted the fruit from the boy, but after thinking about a bit, he uh, decided to set the fruit aside, because he realized that with all the cares and troubles of his position, prolonging his life indefinitely might not be such a great blessing. So he decided to give the fruit of immortality to his Rani, his queen, so that she could enjoy perpetual youth. And so later in that day he gave the fruit to her. She accepted the fruit, but rather than eating it immediately, decided to give the fruit to her secret lover, the manager of the Raja's horses, and later that night she did. But unbeknownst to her, the lover really had feelings for a courtesan in the town, And so he made a gift of the fruit to her. But she knew that prolonging her sinful life would not be much of a blessing. And having given it some thought, decided that it would be the Raja who would most benefit from this truly priceless gift. So the next morning the courtesan went to the Raja and presented him with the fruit. Where did you get this? asked the astonished Raja, who had, of course, immediately recognized the fruit. "'Well, from my lover, the manager of your horses,' was her somewhat reluctant reply. And in a flash, the Raja understood everything and put all the pieces together. What is human happiness or even kingly dignity when my wife can betray my honor with the manager of my stables, and then he, ever deceitful, can prefer the favors of a common courtesan to those of a queen?' The king sat quietly for a long time and realized the ephemeral and ultimately hopeless nature of worldly affairs and decided right then to relinquish his kingdom and to become a sadhu in order to discover the ultimate reality and the true, lasting nature of life. So for chanting this week, I want to start with Totika Ashtakam. The story behind it is one that I heard Maharishi tell many times, and he always likened himself to be somewhat like Trotokacharya more than any of the others. Adi Shankara had a number of disciples, one of which was a not terribly intelligent, simple fellow called Giri. He was a Brahmin, but came from a very poor family and was not terribly well educated. And in fact, he busied himself with all the menial chores that needed to be done and would stand off to the side while the lessons were given by Shankara. He was, as the story goes, unable to form a single sentence properly in Sanskrit. One day, all the main disciples were assembled, and Shankara sat waiting. The disciples pointed out that they were all there and ready, but Shankara asked, well, where is Giri? The other disciples said that he was by the river, washing clothes, and that there'd be no point in waiting for him because, well, he wouldn't understand the lesson anyway. Shankara simply said, but he listens attentively. Well, Giri was doing his duty and was absorbed in washing the clothes 
when his heart was suffused with the blessings of his master, and he suddenly awoke to the fullness of his own inner nature. As the story goes, his alert mind ripened with Shraddha, Shraddha means faith and devotion, was ready to awaken like a fruit ready to be picked. It was as if all the guru had to do was flip the switch. So Giri returned to the group and immediately fell at Shankara's feet in devotion and spontaneously composed and recited an eight-verse hymn in a very difficult and new meter. It's an enduring lesson on the importance of simplicity and devotion as being even more important than philosophy and intellect. And Shankara renamed Giri Trotikacharya. And then I want to follow that with Guru Paduka Stotram, another lovely hymn to the sandals, Paduka, of the Guru, written by Adi Shankara. And that will be it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And an extra thanks to those who've emailed their words of appreciation, and more importantly, suggestions for future shows. We'll see you next time. Samajaya sa 
ಚೇತಸಿ ಕೌತುಕಿತ ಮಮವಾರಯ ಮೋಹ ಮಹಾಜನಧಿಂ ಭವಶಂಕರ ದೇಶಿಕ ಮೇ ಶರಣ ಭವಶಂಕರ ದೇಶಿಕ ಮೇ ಶರಣ ಸುಕೃತಿ ಧಿಕೃತಿ ಬಹುಧಾಶನ
ಅವತಾರ ನೌಕಾಯಿತಾಭ್ಯಾಂ ಗುರುಭಕ್ತಿದಾಭ್ಯಾಂ ವೈರಾಗ್ಯ ಸಾಮ್ರಾಜ್ಯದ ಪೂಜನಾಭ್ಯಾಂ ನಮೋ ನಮ ಶ್ರೀ ಗುರುಪಾದುಕಾಭ್ಯಾಂ ನಮೋ ನಮ ಶ್ರೀ ಗುರುಪಾದುಕಾಭ್ಯಾಶಿ ನಿಶಾಕರಭ್ಯಾಂ ದೌರ್ಭಾಗ್ಯದಾಂಬುಧಮಾಲಿಕಾಭ್ಯಾಂ ಶ್ರೀಪತಿಶಮೀಯಿತ್ಯಾಶುದರಿದ್ರವರ್ಯ ಶ್ರೀ ಗುರುಪಾದುಕಾ 
Namo 